the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, where we discuss all things crypto-related. Your host, Kieran Ryan. 60 Minutes recently ran a segment on how a suspect was scammed into giving her information over to someone who sounded like a trusted friend. What was troubling about this was that with a recording of the suspect's voice, the AI could do an incredibly impressive job of impersonation. You've probably seen a few of these on YouTube. At MoneyWeb, hardly a week goes by without someone writing in to say how they've been scammed, often by impressive-looking websites that promise juicy returns if you just send your crypto to them. They'll even show you a dashboard reflecting a bunch of fake returns. It all looks pretty real and pretty impressive, but there's nothing to it. The problem comes when you want to withdraw. Then you have to pay even more money, often called transaction fees or taxes or some such thing. Now, you can just imagine the potential for scammers to start getting really clever using AI. Well, I want to welcome back to the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, Fazam Esani, founder and CEO of crypto exchange Valo, who recently tweeted about this and alerted my attention to it. Hi, Fazam. It's good to talk to you. We haven't had you on the podcast for a while. I really was alerted to this by yourself. You tweet about it. Do you think AI is going to turn out to be the scammer's best friend? And the reason I ask that is because I recently attended a conference by cybersecurity firm Kaspersky where they pointed to some of the problems with the AI and these scams, but where AI could also be used to improve detection of these scams. What's your take on this? Hi, Kieran. Lovely to be with you again. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I, I think with AI, um, AI is a tool, right? And um, tools can be used for good or for bad. And I think that the AI can be used to propagate scams, but it will also be used to help uh, defend against scams as well. You know, the internet is another case in point. Another technology that was a tool, and a lot of people thought, okay, this is going to be used for nefarious purposes, and it definitely was and has been and still is, but the internet has a lot of good that can be used to defend against uh, challenges as well. So I'm one of those that are, I'm not worried about it from the perspective that, you know, there's oftentimes a narrative that, gosh, you know, the, the scammers and the people that are doing bad things are getting better and better at what they do. But they also forget that the people that are offending against this, the security technology is improving, increasing, and getting better. I don't think the world is going to get rid of scammers anytime soon. But at the same time, I think the same tools that are assisting anybody that's conducting nefarious activities are going to be used by the good actors. And um, that kind of, uh, you know, catching up and kind of scammers getting better and then you know, defenders getting better is going to continue. I mean, we've spoken about this before, and I know as a crypto exchange, this has got to be your your topmost concern is the security, and there's a lot of discussion. Should you should you custody your assets on an exchange, or should you take them off the exchange? And and I think pretty much everybody agrees you should probably custody it yourself, and exchanges themselves would prefer that. But the it does raise this question about AI and and the ability to find. Uh, any loophole, any weakness in the security network. Has this changed the game? Have you, has it forced you as an exchange to start looking a little bit differently at security? Or is this just always been the case with you? I think there's always been a threat, a security threat. When you're running a crypto exchange or any type of financial service, you've always got to consider all the different attack vectors that you could be 
vulnerable to. So to your point, this is, you know, the last thing on my mind when I go to sleep and the first thing on my mind when I wake up in the mornings is security of the platform and security of customer assets. So AI hasn't really changed the way we think about it because the threat is, has always been there and it will continue to be there. And there are a number of things that we do. We have a dedicated cybersecurity team, you know, some of the some of the best minds in the world working on our security. We have that internally. We use external security firms as well. You have security audits, penetration tests, you name it. We even have bug bounties. You know, if there are, if anybody finds like a, what they call a white hat, if anybody finds something that they think is a vulnerability, they can write in and we'll consider it and we'll reward people for for finding anything that they think might be uh, a vulnerability. So there's a lot of things that we do to to secure the network. As you said, you know, and I think not enough people talk about this, but there isn't anything such as 100% security in any system. So you always need to do, try to get as close to 100% as you can, but every exchange in the world, every financial services company in the world, et cetera, there is always a, a level of vulnerability that you always need to be concerned about and do everything that you can to get it as secure as possible. Okay, let's turn for a moment to the crypto markets. An extraordinary start for Bitcoin in 2023, up more than 60%. Uh, yet there are challenges for companies like Binance and Coinbase in the US where regulators appear to have turned decidedly hostile towards crypto companies. Well, how do you read this? A lot of talk about uh, coming from the Bitcoin maximalists say, you know, the, the altcoins really don't have a case. They're all going to go to zero. Uh, Bitcoin is the only thing to invest in. And of course, I think the majority of people sitting somewhere in between those two. What's your reading of the crypto markets this year? Yeah, so there has been a lot of headwinds, uh, particularly from the regulatory authorities in the United States. You mentioned the, you know, what's happening with Coinbase and with Binance, and particularly the SEC bringing suits against both of those companies. Um, and there's been a lot of uh, kind of a, a lack of clarity in the United States about what crypto assets are, are they securities, are they commodities? And there's been a trend towards regulation by enforcement in the United States with a lot of crypto companies facing fines and sometimes very hefty fines, I might add. And there's a feeling in the crypto community in the United States that you know the regulators should go much further in providing clarity rather than enforcement, where many players feel there's just not enough clarity in, in the United States. Now, the implication of this is that actually a lot of activity has started moving from the West to the East. So, you know, the crypto landscape that's very global and with many players uh, and, and participants participating on many exchanges and different platforms around the world, there has been a, a definite discourse in the crypto markets about a shift outside of the United States, towards outside of the United States, towards Europe and Asia. And in fact, we're seeing places like Europe with their MiCA regulation that should, you know, is set to come into existence in mid 2024 slash early 2025. That's putting into place a regulatory framework to attract crypto companies and have a, a very accommodative regulatory framework for, for crypto companies and the crypto industry. And then Hong Kong is doing the same, you know, the UAE is doing the same in, in Dubai and Abu Dhabi, Bahrain is doing the same. Um, South Africa actually just opened its, um, its, its doors to players like ourselves, crypto asset service providers to become regulated 
as of June 1st, uh, FSCA started uh, accepting uh, applications for licenses in South Africa. So we're seeing a lot of activity and movement all around the world. In some places like the United States, it's becoming more restrictive, but in other places, it's becoming more accommodative. You know, so much so to, you know, in the last few days, Hong Kong's authorities wrote to their banks uh, to say, you guys need to start um, banking crypto companies. And something similar happened in South Africa not too long ago as well. So I think the space is dynamic. What we're seeing is a shift. But I also am hopeful that the United States will come right to provide some clarity as time goes on. The U.S. is quite a litigious society, as you know. And there are several lawsuits in place right now that will hopefully provide some more clarity for the industry in the United States. But the rest of the world, I think the, the winners will be those that are providing sensible regulatory frameworks to ensure that there is consumer protection, protection for the public, but at the same time that allows innovation to flourish, um, talents to come in, capital to come in, jobs to be created. So it's it's an exciting exciting time, I think, and I think we'll look back at this particular time in crypto's history as a very pivotal period to determine where the winners and losers will be from a jurisdictional perspective. Yeah, it's it's interesting that Bitcoin is up sixty percent this year, despite all of these challenges, regulatory challenges, and all sorts of challenges that have uh, come up against it. But it, it does kind of prove once again that Bitcoin is extremely immune, I won't say immune, um, resistant to these kind of attacks, which of course is what it was designed to do. When, it, when we talk about the business of crypto exchanges, Valor, for example, are you still sh- finding that the, the you're shaking off the cobwebs from the crypto winter of 2022, or are you starting to see volumes returning to the market as they traditionally do during a bull market? Yeah, you know, you mentioned that you know Bitcoin is up about sixty percent since the beginning of the year, but we are still down about sixty-five percent from the all-time highs in November twenty twenty-one. So we've seen our volume stay relatively steady. I wouldn't say we're in the bull market in any stretch of the imagination yet, particularly with the regulatory headwinds that I just mentioned. So we're seeing kind of uh, stability on the platform, but we aren't seeing what happens generate the beginning of bull runs. So I think. I think we might be in this in this phase for a little bit of time. It's it's very unclear. You know, things could change in a matter of weeks or months, or they could they could stay like this for a year or two. Very difficult to predict, particularly when you overlay the challenges in the broader economy, given inflation challenges, interest rate challenges, etc. So difficult to say what the future look like. It looks like I would say that we we are probably still, in your words, shaking off the cobwebs from the winter. The, the crypto winter, but certainly hopefully heading into into spring. Yeah. A recent study I read put crypto's global adoption among adults at less than 5%, which is a bit lower than people were anticipating just, uh, let's say, two or three years ago. So it seems that adoption has stalled a bit over the last couple of years. Yet Glassnode, uh, the blockchain company, they did some research which tells us that by far the majority of Bitcoin owners are not selling. And that's no doubt a bullish sign. Is that what you are seeing? People are buying Bitcoin and tending to hold it. No, I think the big Bitcoin hodlers, as you call them, I think they are around and they've been around and they will continue to be around for a long time. We on, on Valor, we have a bunch of different type of personas uh, on the platform. We have those that are buying and holding, and they hold for long periods of time, as I mentioned. 
And then we have uh, a lot of traders as well that are in and out of the market, sometimes day trading or, or a little bit longer than that. So the sense of accumulation in Bitcoin is, you know, anecdotally, I can say anecdotally, is is still there. And particularly with the prices that have come down in the last year or so, um, I know many that have started to take this as an opportunity to accumulate. My personal view, again, I don't give financial advice or anything like that, but my personal view is that I still think that the promise of Bitcoin being in the hundreds of thousands of dollars is, is, is ever present. Uh, the timing of that, I think, is is unclear. But I think, um, you know, people hodling is, is not going away. If anything, it's, it's, it's strengthening in many ways. You would have seen as well that uh, BlackRock, one of the largest or the largest asset you know, investment manager out there, recently applied for a spot Bitcoin ETF. So this is kind of one of the portals to the largest pools of capital in the world opening up products in this market, despite the regulatory uncertainties, to apply for a product that will give their customers access to a Bitcoin ETF. So you have you know news like this, and you also have challenges in the traditional financial space. And you know you do see more and more people coming into into Bitcoin and in the crypto markets. But that 5% doesn't surprise me. I think we're still very, very early. And I think there's still a lot that needs to be fixed in the crypto markets. Payments are still not as, as seamless as they need to be. A lot of research and work is, is, is taking place on what they call layer two platforms, um, which is kind of you know one level abstracted from the blockchain level or the, the core blockchain level. So I think, I think a lot is changing. There's a lot of work to be done. I think adoption will increase as the technological advances progress in crypto because there's a lot that's happening, as I mentioned. But also as we juxtapose it with some of the challenges that I think will still continue in in the financial world, uh, in the traditional financial world. And you know, when we look at like the debt ceiling in the United States, you know, that's kind of forgotten now because it's a few weeks old. But let's not forget that this has just been kicked down the road. And we're going to have more debt ceiling challenges in a couple of years' time. So I think when you bring together the technological advancements and progress of the crypto space, and uh, and as, as well as the challenges of the traditional financial space, those two things together should lead to more adoption in the future. Yeah, I don't know if you ever remember reading, I think it was about a year ago, Forbes Investment, uh, which is a fund in the United States where... They predicted the one billion dollar Bitcoin, and I, I mean, I saw the headline. I had to go and check. You know, is this real? But by the way, that's by um, I think it was two thousand and thirty-eight. But there, there are some really extravagant predictions out there. But they're still coming in. You know, even uh, quite recently, there's been a few from some of the various banks in the United States talking about a Bitcoin that will, uh, in the next few years, be potentially at several hundred thousand dollars. All predicated on what you've mentioned is that this fear about the debt ceiling, this fear about interest rates and inflation, uh, where Bitcoin seems to be the cure for all of these things. Is that how you see it? I think others might think that Bitcoin is a, is, is the cure. I, I actually don't see it as a cure. I think Bitcoin is a tool um, and it can be used again for, for good and for bad. But I think it's, it's one of the best technologies that society has ever developed for a monetary instrument, you know, to preserve value over, over time. Um, and so I think A, it preserves value over time, and B, you can transfer that value over space 
more seamlessly than any other technology that we've we've had. So I, I do think that it is going to be a very important infrastructural element of our future financial system. I'm less of those that say, oh, you know, Bitcoin is a solution to all our societal problems, because I think we have a lot of societal problems that are not going to be solved by a monetary instrument. But as I said, I think as a tool, as a monetary tool, I think it is well-placed to provide a lot of service to humanity. Uh, it does need to get better in certain respects. As I said, if, you, if you're transacting on the Bitcoin blockchain, there are times where you, know, you can pay in the tens of dollars to do a transaction. That's not feasible for a future financial system that's doing payments that cost tens of dollars as it's just the fee. But as I said, there's a lot of work that's being done to bring those costs down in layer two technologies or lightning network or, or other things. So I have a lot of faith that the technology will get there. But I think there's a lot of work to be done from players like ourselves at Valor, which are providing the infrastructure to onboard people, as well as at the protocol level that allows those protocols to function in a much more seamless way in, in the future. So I'm very bullish, but I do want to just temper that with you know, I think sometimes we get overexcited about what Bitcoin can do for the world. Uh, I think it's going to be incredibly important, but I think there's a lot of work that humanity needs to do beyond Bitcoin to get us out of our troubles. All right. Sorry, I made a mistake there. I said uh, the, the $1 billion Bitcoin, that wasn't uh, Forbes investment. It was Fidelity. Um, I knew it began with an F. It might be just, just let me just make one comment on that. Because when we talk about a billion dollar Bitcoin, it sounds like, gosh, that's crazy. Mm. And I think what they're more saying is that, you know, there is a scenario over the next few decades that the dollar loses a tremendous amount of value and that Bitcoin holds a tremendous amount of value. And I think when you have uh, prognostications like that, oftentimes what people are talking more about is kind of the de devaluation of the dollar rather than the appreciation of Bitcoin. Because in a scenario where the dollar fails, then uh, you know the Bitcoin and Bitcoin, Bitcoin survives, then nobody would be even willing to pay a billion dollars for a Bitcoin because Bitcoin or, or uh, because the US dollar wouldn't be worth the paper it's printed on in the case of a dollar failure, which by the way is a non-zero probability, right? This happened in, with, with, with currencies in the past and it's the story of fiat currencies in the past. In that scenario, it would be very challenging for society, don't get me wrong, but I think uh, not enough people pay heed or pay attention to the fact of that there is an on-zero chance that in the next few decades, and during my lifetime, that the dollar could not, uh, may not preserve its value. All right. And last week, I had uh, Joey Garcia, who is regulatory, head of legal and regulatory at Zappo Bank, which is the world's first Bitcoin bank. He was on and he was talking about exchanges and how they they kind of fake their figures. And he wasn't, of course, talking about all exchanges. He was talking about some exchanges. But it does seem to be an issue. You and I have spoken about that in the past. Just explain what goes on and, and why this is important. Inflating uh, of, of volumes that go through an exchange, why would that be important? Yeah, well, it was certainly not important to us, and we do not do it. I think why some players do that, it's called wash trading which is, you know, they get their people on their own platform or themselves to buy and sell against themselves, which actually does nothing for their fees or their income or anything like that, but actually projects a lie into the market, right? So they, what they're trying to do, certain exchanges when they engage in this activity, is trying to kind of pretend that they're a really flourishing marketplace that, you know, you're missing out if you don't come into this deeply liquid 
uh, exchange. Now, um, unfortunately, that's, uh, from what I understand, that's a behavior and a practice that is more common than I wish were the case. At Valor, to be very clear, we have never done any such thing. We've never wash traded. We never will wash trade just because that's not the type of people we are. And that's, I, don't, I don't think that serves anything. If we, if we don't have liquidity, then we don't have liquidity. And in fact, if you go into some of our pairs, you'll see that we don't have much liquidity. And that's, it is what it is. But you know, we are the largest Bitcoin RAND trading platform in the world at the moment. Um, but those figures that one sees are exactly as they are. Now, Valor isn't the only exchange that also doesn't engage in wash trading. There are several others that I, I firmly believe do not. And that's kind of, they're known in the market not to, uh, ones with high integrity. But there are some exchanges, unfortunately, that engage in that activity. It doesn't help them except for the fact that they are, as I said, projecting a lie to try to convince people to come to that platform. But I wish this, this weren't the case so that we could actually have an accurate view of what the crypto markets are actually doing rather than trying to determine who is lying and who's telling the truth. Okay, so you say you're the largest Bitcoin RAND exchange in South Africa, and yet there may be some exchanges that are, you know, we can't really trust their figures. How do you know that for sure? So the, the cryptocurrency market is, is very transparent. So we publish our trading volume figures uh, for, for the world to see. You can go onto our website and see what our last 24-hour trading volume is. You can track that. You can, you can you know, keep the data and kind of uh, track it over time, not just with us, but with our biggest competitors as well. So all of the main exchanges in the world that are cryptocurrency exchanges publish this data for the world to see and for free. So right now, I'm actually looking at the live data. We are actually uh, more than double our closest competitor with Bitcoin czar trading volume right now. So there are other places like Binance is also uh, a player in the Bitcoin RAND trading market. They probably have about 5% of the, of the market in South Africa. At present, right now, we have about 63% of the market uh, that, that's out there. So there might be some, some OTC desks and things of that nature that are not included in this uh, figure, but I'm talking about exchanges that publish their data. And pretty much all exchanges in the crypto space publish that data. So that's what this is based on. Okay. Very quickly, we're running out of time here. Uh, I noticed you dropped your fees at Valor for trades involving stablecoin, the stablecoin USDC, to 0.03%. That's very low. It's very low by global standards. What's the reason for that? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So we wanted to really kickstart our USD and, and international crypto markets. To, to my point earlier, we have much more liquidity in our czar pairs, and we're building our liquidity in our non-czar pairs. And so this is something that worked very well for our czar pairs to bring our, our fee costs or our, our fee structure down. And we wanted to do exactly the same thing for the international markets. And so we've brought our fees down, which are probably some of the lowest fees in the world, to really stimulate and welcome and incentivize people uh, across the world to come and trade on Valor for our USDC pairs, our dollar uh, coin pairs against uh, other cryptocurrencies. So that's really the main thing to to try to um, uh, deepen our liquidity and to attract more traders to those books. Last question, Farzam, the big picture. What are the, what are the big stories to look out for in the second half of this year? I think 
you know, there's a, there's a couple of scenarios. I think number one is things just plod along a little bit as as the kind of the world uh, is is still struggled in with its you know financial climate, and that would seep into the crypto markets as well. But I think um, what we will see and what we have seen is a little bit of pruning in the crypto space. You know, over the past year or so, there have been those players that haven't survived the the, the crypto markets. There'll probably be some more consolidation that we see in the crypto markets around the world. I hope we see much more clarity in the regulatory domain uh, for crypto markets, uh, failing which I think we'll continue to see a flight with crypto activity from the West to the East. But I do think that within the next six months, we should probably start to see a recovery in some of the crypto uh, uh, prices. Uh, you know, some altcoins are down 90% uh, plus. Uh, Bitcoin, as I mentioned, is down about 65% plus. I think we'll certainly see a recovery in in uh, Bitcoin. Um, whether the alts come into play or not, I think that's for the market to decide. But I think, you know, uh, one of my friends messaged me and said, oh, everybody seems to be leaving crypto for AI. Mm. And uh, that's certainly been, AI has been the soup du jour, so to speak. I think in the future, the confluence between AI and crypto will be something to keep an eye on. Uh, so I'm very excited to see what that brings for humanity. Wonderful. Fazam Esani, CEO and co-founder of Bella. Thanks so much for joining us. And we do look forward to see you. And let's not uh, wait for another two years before that happens. Agree. Thanks so much for having me here. Appreciate it. For listening to the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, hosted by Kieran Ryan. To listen to our other podcasts, go to moneyweb.co.za or the MoneyWeb app and follow MoneyWeb News for daily updates.